0: In this episode of This Week in Photo, I get to sit down with Mr. Don Komarechka. He's a celebrated macro photographer coming to us now from Bulgaria. This is Twitter. Hey, welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. I haven't had Don Komarechka on the show in a while, and turns out there's a good reason for that. Don, when we first started interacting, was based in Canada up north, and now he has made his way over to Bulgaria and has set up residence there and is now a resident over there. He's hanging out doing photography, doing the same stuff, only in a different latitude longitude. Don Komarechka, welcome to the show, man, or welcome back to the show. How are you doing?
1: It feels like it's been a lifetime since I've been on the program. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, wow, the last year has been a bit of a blur. We moved to Bulgaria just over a year ago. And uh, we can get into the reasons for that. But, man, life is good. And when you are faced with existential decisions that a lot of us, I think, were faced with Uh, During the pandemic, it's like, what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to keep doing the same job? Are you going to keep the the, the same geography? In in my case, uh, decisions were made. And now greetings from the coast of the Black Sea in Eastern Europe. Uh, Life is good here.
0: That is great, man! Congratulations, and I want to I want to dive into that a little bit. And I know at the towards the end of this interview, you're going to give some tips and tricks on some of the stuff that you're working on and macro and all that stuff. So definitely want to get to that. Um, but before that, so Bulgaria from Canada, right? Um, you're a Canadian. <laughs> You're a Canadian of Ukrainian descent. Komarechka is. Yeah, my, my last name
1: is uh, is, is Ukrainian. Uh, Komarichko yeah. would be uh, the original version from a small village just south of Lviv. Yeah. Um, but my wife is Bulgarian.
0: Okay. Okay. And I see the I see the so, Ukrainian colors back there as well. So. yeah. Oh yeah I don't totally, I don't want to make uh, don't want to make this all about politics. But you're you're a stone's throw, relatively speaking away from the conflict, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict up there. It, yeah, well, I mean. What, what's your involvement there? Europe Have you been a impacted? place. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, sort of. I mean, uh, so Europe is a smaller place compared to, like, in Canada. If I drive three hours, uh, I'd get to, you know, my hometown of Sudbury, Ontario, versus where I had lived in Barrie. And it's like, okay, well, it's more of the same. But if I drive three, three and a half hours or so from here, uh, I could find myself in another country. I could be in Romania. Um, If I drive 350 kilometers, which is what 217 miles or so, I am in the Odessa Oblast of Ukraine. So, you know, Europe is a is a different scale of things. Uh, And of course, because it's that close, when the conflict started in February, uh, refugees started leaving. Uh, Ukraine into anywhere they can go. And that includes the neighboring countries, but they don't stay there if there's not enough room and they continue to flow across Europe and that included Bulgaria. So from, God, it was, uh, I think maybe just a week or two after the conflict had started, the refugees started arriving and we tried to help. You know, There was an an organization uh, of very loosely put together, the government hadn't been involved in this point and they are now, thankfully. But there was a sports complex in the center of the city of Varna, Bulgaria, next to the coast that we're very close to. And they were housing refugees as they were coming in by the bus loads or by their own cars. And we we wanted to try to help them. So we asked, you know, wh- what do you need? And they gave us a, a list of, you know, uh, essential foods, uh, baby supplies, hygiene products, pillows and uh, Pajamas and art supplies for the kids wasn't on the list, but we supplied a lot of that because these kids have been through some dramatic stuff. And we were doing uh, car loads. I I don't even know how many, but many times the worth of our vehicle with uh, uh, just supplies for these people that were coming in. And after a couple of these, I realized, you know, maybe some people can help. And I started working on a series of Ukrainian-themed images that I put into the public domain to elicit mm. a bit of donations. I mean, I'm not a charity, but it's kind of grassroots. Let's just run and gun at, uh, a very bad term. OK. But let's just say that we are going to try to move as quickly as possible and make the most impact as we can to help these refugees. And we did. And the, the idea was people need help. They have none we can give it. Simple, period. Yeah, and yeah. that that actually started an entire series for me uh, earlier this year supporting Ukraine. And, and that series has evolved and the majority of it has been put in the public domain. I feel like I'm a better photographer and a better person for having done that. I don't want to profit off of that at all. It's just it was all for the, the greater good of society. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I feel bad though because it took a massive conflict nearby for me to think more altruistically, and I, the the bar should have been lower for me to to do that. Yeah. And but 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 I did it, and, and we're here it. now. And 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 so I think that there's always more that people can do in order to to make a positive impact in the world. And you know you might not think it's much, but. Some of the organized, uh, I I, I guess, disorganized groups of people, they had started letting the Ukrainian refugees into hotels. And... The the hotels didn't really know how to supply these people, but they had a promise from the government because it's the off season to get some money to house these people. But they had really no supply chains, so there was one hotel that we had gone to. I think a, a friend was applying for a job. I don't know if they got it or not. But we saw a bunch of the refugees, and we asked them to just get a list from every room. And we went shopping, and there were things on that list like you know dog food strollers, all the regular stuff you might expect. But we got everything off that list and delivered it personally. And the personal thank yous that we received from those people was, um, it it was powerful. Uh, You know, it's one of those things that you don't forget when somebody comes up to you in a a dire need and they say thanks. So um, that's how this year started. And I expected when we came to Eastern Europe, to find peace along the coast of the Black Sea. Go. So if you don't know where Bulgaria is, it's on the coast of the Black Sea. Uh, to the north of us is Greece. To the south of us is Turkey. Sorry. Wait a minute. I'm. A, to, I've got. So we are north of Greece. Uh, right. We are south of Romania. We are in this part of Europe that even I, living here, have a hard time properly comprehending. We share a border with Turkey, Serbia, North uh, Macedonia. And it is a wonderful little bastion of seven mountain ranges a valley, the Thracian Valley that is a great wine growing region and a coastline and we are closer to the coast here. So it is a peaceful place and it was intending to be a peaceful place where we could just grow a small orchard and uh, and raise our family here in a small village 20 minutes away from the big city and uh, and just live life happily. And then war
0: broke out and, then and so we switched out. gears a little bit during that time. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's yeah. What a story. I remember talking to you when you were just about to make that move. And I was like, well, you know, it sounds amazing. You explained all the, you know, the financial reasons and the benefits and all that stuff. Of course, you're a very analytical person. So, of course, it made sense. Um, One, I was curious about how that move would affect your art and the business side of Don, it seems like maybe not a whole lot. And then so the second first part of that question is, how has it affected you as an artist in the business? And then the second part of that question, it pertains to that altruistic project support project that you're doing and how creating work that's so tied to you, you know, geographically, you know, familial, you know, what's the word I'm looking for through family, I guess, you know, uh, how has that changed your approach to the work? Like, are you versus working for a client or doing a self-assigned project where you're geeking out about focus stacking or something like that? When there's, you know, a a profit motive that is going to potentially benefit a large group of people, unknown faces, does that change your approach? Do you get more meticulous? Do you get less meticulous? You know, those two questions, financial and art. So uh,
1: financially in Bulgaria, you either pay 10% flat rate income tax or you pay less than that because you're getting paid dividends through a corporation. Uh, So that would be a 5% flat rate amount. The the, the tax and the cost of living and all of that is just much lower here than in most other parts of the world. And so it's advantageous if you want to work less, then uh, you've already established yourself with clientele in another area. Uh, you can move here and you can work from home and you can make that magic happen. And that, that was kind of the, as you were alluding to Frederick, uh, one of the reasons why this was very advantageous, but, uh, to that end, I thought, okay, well, I can do all sorts of projects that I want to do that nobody might care about. So I might not be able to make a lot of money on, but it would just be passion projects and you could still make something off, off of that, but it wouldn't have to be, it's like, okay, well. If I'm going to spend this 10-hour stint of time on this project, what is the return on the investment? Maybe there's none. And that's still okay because you don't have the same uh, crunch that you were under during the rat race of the North American culture, uh, which I'm good at. Don't get me wrong. I can do. But it steals your soul over time. And it's, it's helpful to escape from that a little bit. So um, when the uh, Ukraine project came up, I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to make any money on this, but that's okay. You know, There's stuff in the bank. I've got documentary film projects. I've got other clients that are still reliable that are going to come in. And I've got all of the just offshoot ideas in my head of, okay, well, oh, what if I try this? And I had this idea years ago, but I knew it would take like a week to try to figure out if it would work or not. Ah, crap, it didn't work. Okay, yeah. well, at least I tried. But, and I wasn't stressed about, okay, well, should I have been trying to pay the bills in that time? And, and so it was a lot more freeing from that perspective. As an artist, um, I felt like, I guess I should dial it back to when I first started to become a photographer. Uh, I did not want to do it as a profession because I did not want to depend on that for my income and compromise my art as a result. Hmm. And I did that. I did exactly that. Uh, I'm not going to say compromise is the right word, but I was looking for the dollars where they could be found. And my time was gravitating towards that because obviously that was paying the bills and keeping the lights on and and so on. Um, But over here, it's a different ethos. It's a different mentality when you've already established that you can do it. Now you can do it for less, which means you can say no to projects that you don't care about. And you can say yes to projects that you care about, but might not pay anything, at least not right away. So an entire mentality shift uh, along the, the process to, to come out here. And the Ukraine project has been sort of sort of the, I guess, the peak of that, because I knew intentionally that that was not going to be. I did not want to profit on that at all. That was the intention. And when I realized that, I wish I had it with me. It's just in the other room. Um, some of the ideas that I had were to, like, create a, uh, a 3D print of a bread mold that is, like, yay big. And maybe I'll send you some photos of this, Frederick, sure. uh, to, to then make bread shaped like the Ukrainian trisub, the, the, their coat of arms, uh, the trident shape. And then bake bread in that shape and then give it to the refugee centers. And, and that was just from a complete stranger that was trying to say, OK, well, here's some sustenance in your national symbolism that is powerful for you. Yeah. And yes, I did take some pictures along the way. But the end result was not the pictures. It was people receiving this weirdly shaped loaf of bread that is immediately symbolic of their history, their culture, and their sovereignty. Um, the creative mind can work in strange ways, and and kind of work its way down the rabbit hole to find ways that are meaningful.
0: And uh, I believe I've done that. That's beautiful, man. Yeah, send me that shot for sure, and I'll, uh, you know, well, through the magic of editing. If you're listening to me talk right now, you will have seen that already because Don was talking <laughs> while that bread was on screen and the mold. Yeah, that's that's crazy, man. There's there's there's. I don't know. You know, It's so interesting to see when, when photographers that I admire use their powers, their superpowers for good, right? And th- I think a, I would argue all professional photographers get stuck in sort of that eddy of, yeah, I'm an artist, but I still got to eat right so do i take the job that i don't necessarily want to take and we've done whole shows on this right where do i take the job that i don't necessarily agree with or want to take and that's literally been in the news lately of you know a bakery turning down clients because of religious reasons and all that and and the litigation that followed that but on the photographer side having the ability or just the power or the flexibility i guess is a better word to say no I don't want to do that job for whatever reasons, and I want to do this job. It doesn't that one doesn't align with whatever, right? I don't like it. I don't want it. Creatively, it doesn't get my juices flowing, or whatever your reasons to be able to not do it and still eat at the end of the day is, is the magic trick of being able to survive and not be the starving artist who's 98 pounds because you know he's suffering for his or her art. So, you know, with, with all that said, Don, you know, last, when last, last we spoke, obviously you're the king of the micro kingdom, right? Or photographing the micro kingdom there. What has changed for you over the last, I don't know, let's call it 18 months, two years or so? I think, I think that's how long it's been since last you've been on the show, at least, at least two years, right? So what, what's changed? Cameras, lenses, lighting, technique, light rooms, you know, what, what's different for you?
1: So I I still use Lightroom and Photoshop as kind of the primary engines for editing, if you want to talk about that. Although I have found, especially with my Snowflake series of work, which is ongoing uh, now through the winter time, if you you know me, I always do a series of snowflakes, I I discovered that uh, uh, Topaz Labs, their gigapixel AI, has been really cool to edge out the details in geometry. And snowflakes are geometry. So from the editing standpoint, I've added that as a tool. Uh, But it's not, I don't know, uh, the whole AI, uh, I guess, revolution, for lack of a better term, right now can be Overbaked and, and over adjusted. So, from that, you know, you, it's a separate layer. You dial it back to 70%, and then you use um, uh, a layer mask and, and you brush in or you brush away the areas where it doesn't look very good. Mm-hmm. So, I embrace some of these new technologies, and that's good. Um, I've been using the Lumix S1R as a primary camera for probably four years now. Uh, I'm not sure how long it's been on the market, but I've had it longer than that, uh, Mm -hmm. because I had a pre-release version uh, a couple of months before that time, and it is still my go-to camera. Uh, There hasn't been anything better. And we're gonna talk about a technique at the end of this episode um, that I utilize with that camera that you can do with Sony and Olympus and and others as well. But uh, that was a really helpful technique. I wanna save my thunder for, for that particular piece at the end. But in terms of subject matter, um i've done a lot of work with water droplets and snowflakes and ultraviolet fluorescence but there's been so many other random little experiments a lot of what if moments that have come along the way and i think i've frozen again frederick i don't know if you can see oh And, and some of those experiments uh, along the way, uh, they're, they're rather novel. I mean, I've got this this computer chip. This is a I don't know something from the mid '90s, an Intel Pentium Pro. And the thing about these old chips are, you can pictures of the actual die on the backside. And Frederick, I think I might have frozen again but I'm back now, so there we go. Uh, Internet connections in Eastern Europe, thank you for that. Uh, But you can photograph the the back die of these chips, and it's really marvelous what you can actually imagine that to be. I'll show you the actual image that resulted from that, but the the benefit for me is that's a what-if moment. Nobody cares about what I do with that. It is just a creative moment that ends up becoming something. All right, um, let's be creative. Let's just make magic, and uh, and see where that takes us. And that and freedom—that's
0: one, freedom. that, one of the things that—that that, that inspires me when I speak to you, Don. Because you're, you're. In, in fact, when you were doing your podcast, right, it was very much about the the geeky nerdiness, scientific side of photography and you embrace that and explore that from a, you know, almost an adventurer standpoint, like, hey, what if I did so-and-so, so-and-so, or look at this crazy new lens that I found in the junkyard. Let me see if I can make it do these kind of things. Those things float your boat. The process, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the process of getting the final image in a lot of ways, seems as important to you as the final image itself. It's all one container. Is that is that fair or accurate?
1: Yeah, no, it is. I I, I love making mistakes. Um, You know, I I revel in your mistakes, photographers. I mean, make sure that you ask that what if question and you don't care about what the answer is. You care about the question. And there are images that I've created that didn't actually end up working well but at the end of the day i got an answer the answer might not have been perfect the answer might not have been what i hoped for to be a portfolio piece but darn i got an answer and let's just take that and run with it because um that answer is something that i can use that is a stepping stone towards a future success or just a future what if moment. It doesn't matter what that future moment is. It's just a moment of that success to make that work towards whatever whatever happens next. And that's the goal is to be in that whatever is next moment and just kind of love that and be in that space and not be afraid to stay there for a longer period of time because you're not dependent on, you know, putting pennies in the bank.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, no, no, very true. And do you do you ever find yourself being I don't know seduced by other genres you know to or or merging kind of crossing the streams with other genres it's all light right and composition and all that i get it but stepping out of the macroverse or into compositing from a from a you know more creative or science fictiony type standpoint have you ever thought about doing that or because the images that i've seen from you are beautiful artistic and and you know the definition of perfection, right? When you you can tell that someone obsessed Thank over you. these images, right? You can I can feel your obsession oozing off of these images, right? Do you ever do you ever feel like doing but, something you know, more? Yeah, for me,
1: yeah, go ahead. Not not mainstream, Frederick. Like if I were to dig into my cabinet here of, of wonderful treasures, um, I I got I, I got all sorts of wonderful weird cameras. Um, especially cameras that can shoot in stereoscopic 3D uh, from 1926. And these types of cameras, I mean, I love stereo photography. It's always been a part of photography. It's actually stereo imagery has been a thing before photography technically existed. Um, But the idea of being able to use all of our senses uh, to experience something is wonderful. And We've got a VR revolution happening right now. But photography at its core started out using both of our eyes. And now we just use one. So I, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm saying that there has to be the opportunity for people to explore photography in a way that utilizes our full visual perception. And most photographers never will. So this is one of those areas that I I really need to do more in. Um, because how many people can experience it? Almost nobody. I get that. But, um, If anybody has a VR headset, they can, a 3D TV, which nobody has, anymore, uh, then sure. If you have a Google Cardboard or anything like that, you could throw your phone into. That's more accessible. Um, There are ways you can cross your eyes to see things in 3D. When I shipped my latest book, anybody that bought it through the Kickstarter campaign got red blue anaglyph glasses that they could put on. And there was a 3D chapter in the book that described how you can do that kind of thing. So do I want to diversify and stretch out? Yes. But further along the unbeaten path that is the key for me
0: yeah yeah that's interesting and that but it goes back to that earlier discussion right having there's only 24 hours in the day on this planet at least right so how much of that can you devote to experimentation and exploration and you know, doing all the things that kind of excite your creative bone while also spinning the plate of keeping the lights on and food on the table and diapers and all that. So you got to got to find that happy medium in there, right? (laughs)
1: Exactly. But I've got this one idea for a shot. If somebody beats me to it, you know, it's yours because I'm telling you exactly how I'm going to create this shot. I've got a 12 inch crystal ball in storage in Canada. I've got to get it here. And I'm going to put it in a field. And the field, I know exactly where it's going to go. Uh, And it's going to overlook an ostrich farm in my village. Because, of course, I'm in a Bulgarian village that has an ostrich farm. And uh, this crystal ball is going to sit on a tree. And I'm going to have a camera mounted a little bit underneath it. And it's going to have a stereoscopic 3D lens on it. And I'm going to do a long exposure star trail image through the entire night that is going to have the stars spinning around in the night sky, but they're also going to be spinning around inside the crystal ball. And the depth perception difference between the crystal ball refracted image of the stars and the stars themselves will be perceptible in stereo. And that is an image that will be, uh, I don't know, a milestone for me for lack of a better term once i can accomplish that i could say all right um you know that that's one less thing i have to do before i die it's on the bucket list yeah so but those ideas those creative processes um i don't think anybody's ever going to pay for that so yes i still like right now i'm doing my snowflake series right now i'm licensing images and i'm doing documentary film work and i haven't ever done more documentary film work than i have been doing in the last five years it's continuing to ramp up and video is a huge thing i remember you frederick you you coined the term uh at least i heard it first from you uh multimediographer, yeah that's mine. Uh, yes <laughs> uh, back in the <laughs> earlier days of twip and uh and to not just be a photographer but to be a cinematographer uh at least a videographer and being able to put these puzzle pieces together I think was critically important. And, and I utilize that and you got to pay the bill somehow. Yeah. A great way to pay the bills, um, in in a strange way too, uh, if I may touch on briefly is, uh, copyright infringement because Mm. so many people out there will find your beautiful work. They'll take it for free because they found it on the internet and they think that it, has no cost associated with it because well it was on google and then it ends up in a commercial product i've had my images show up on t-shirts on book covers uh in very very commercial uses that i've had to pursue legal action against and yeah even that that though like
0: and and of course yeah like like litigating and making sure that you're keeping up with the copyright infringers, and and uh, you know getting paid from them and that that sort of thing, a hundred percent important. But again, back to that bucket of twenty four hours in the day, right? <laughs> so, you know, each one of those things takes yeah. a little bite out of your <laughs> the time too, right? Yeah. All right, you you froze. Yeah. Um, it's always more to
1: do. Oh, sorry. Uh, it, it's always more to do. There's all, only so much time in each day, and and we have the challenge of making the most of that time. Yeah, and I have to play games with my dog. You know, I I have to uh, I have to make forts in the kitchen that my wife doesn't know about because they are torn apart uh, and put away by the time my daughter and I realize mom's coming home. You know, like there's there's these personal moments that we have to to embrace and uh, and life has to be both those most important things. That's why yeah.
0: what we're here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's all about at the end of the day. Right. As we get older, you know, it becomes more and more about how much time that we can spend with our families, our hobbies, our profession, um, you know, the things that life throws at us you know, like uh, COVID, for example, or, you know, it, it, global conflict or something like that. All of these things can happen and be thrown at you and you have to process them. But again, with the irony is we only get 24 hours in a day, you know, to kind of kind of deal with all this stuff while still maintaining our creativity and desire to be creative and all the things, you know, with that, Don, before we lose your connection, Um, you're, you are working on some, uh, there, I mean, you teed up a couple of images that you wanted to kind of walk us through your thoughts on that you've produced. Can you take me through those? All right, Don, so let's, let's. Talk about technique a little bit. Um, I always like to see the what you're working on because it's always mind blowing and otherworldly. And you sent over a, two images, a before and after, or two versions of the same image that you're going to take us through. Can you uh, can you dive into that?
1: So, so these images, Frederick, they're, they're not difficult to create. But you have to have the right ingredients in the right play. Uh, and you've got to have everything in proper alignment. So water droplet refraction imagery is a challenge from a number of factors. Alignment is key. You have to have, in this case, I've got a sunflower, which is the national flower of Ukraine, in behind a, uh, a dandelion seed that is covered in water droplets. And the dandelion seed itself. Uh, those water droplets, they are mostly spherical. And the more spherical those droplets are, the better they act like lenses. And in behind that, uh, is that flower that comes through in those droplets, but you only see this beautifully blue background until you take a step back. And when you take that step back, you realize sort of how the image came to be. But what you don't realize is the two images are the same image. Because one of the keys about macro photography, uh, that w- it's paramount in the rule book. You can't overcome it, un- unless you follow my advice, I suppose. Uh, th- the closer you get, the shallower your depth of field becomes. So if I were to have shot this image in this close-up view, my depth of field would have been so incredibly shallow, I would have had maybe, Uh, a tenth of it, maybe a fifth at most, in focus. Now, I've got most of it in focus in this shot. And I did that by using the high-resolution mode on my Lumix S1R. Now, a lot of Lumix cameras has the high-res mode. uh, Olympus, or uh, OM systems, as they're called now, Uh, they've got that. Fuji has it on their medium format. Sony has it on a bunch of cameras. I don't think Canon and Nikon have it yet. Complain to them because they need to have this mode, which basically quadruples the resolution of your camera sensor. So my 47 megapixel camera sensor becomes a 187 megapixel sensor, which is ridiculous. Under normal circumstances, I would never need to use that. But if I get so close to my subject to fill the frame with it properly, my depth of field falls apart. If I intentionally get further away Knowing that I can crop in on my subject and throw away even 90% of the images, if I have a good 18.7 megapixel image, then that's a good image. And if the pixel quality holds up, you know you're using a good lens and uh, and you're not using an aperture so small that diffraction limiting comes in and starts to limit your resolution too much. You can thread the needle, thread the needle between uh, the Uh, the depth of field that you seek with the resolution and the resolving qualities that your lens and the physics of the scenario are capable of. And so the wider field image is what I was after out of camera, knowing that I can throw 90% of that image away so long as i'm not shooting beyond f11 usually f8 is probably the sweet spot for this type of work Uh, f5.6 i've used as well because again diffraction limiting can be a big issue and um, we're not going to go into the whole physics lesson of uh of how diffraction works but the smaller your aperture or the smaller your pixels based on the size of that aperture and yes the high resolution mode effectively makes your pixels smaller and i want to make use of the word effectively, because they're still the same size. But that's another conversation. Yeah. Uh, we we now have the, uh, the resolving capabilities being limited by a number of factors. But if you can thread the needle between the two of those, you can do some really magical macro work without the need for extensive focus stacking techniques, so you can set it up set the camera, I press the button on a, on a four-second delay, I run away from the camera uh, because the floors can be a bit spongy, even if you're standing next to it. Everything has to be stable and solid. And uh, it goes click, 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 and away you go. And everything is magic. The, the setup to, to do this is, I mean, I've got clamps, and I've got lights, and I've got all this stuff. I mean, I've got one of them behind me here. This is a, a classic setup. A classic setup that I use here. Uh, You've got a couple of lights. I'll often use uh, lighter torches uh, or flashlights. These are small, and they're easy to manipulate, and a number of crab clamps. If people aren't familiar with crab clamps, uh, buy a lot of them. They've got a, a camera thread or like a tripod thread screw on one side, and they can just allow you to clamp anything to anything. And uh, they're golden. And this is on a, um, uh, a Platypod Extreme base here. I actually have this as a, um, a Platypod. Uh, they saw me using this, and they put it together as a, as a kit that you can get directly from them. But even like I'll put random flashlights and uh, and, and stuff on, on a base like this. And I use this for my tabletop setups all the time. It, it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, it's just lights on gooseneck arms and clamps, and you just got to get the right tools to make that stuff work. So, um, you know, that's part of the magic, is just seeing how the little bits and pieces kind of come together and say, yeah, you know what? I could put that on my desk. I, I, yeah. I could make that happen. And that makes it a lot more approachable to people.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the that high-resolution mode on some of the Lumix cameras is, I think, one of the most overlooked feature in those cameras. You know, a lot of people focus literally on the focusing, you know, the, the, and the focusing speed of Lumix cameras, but that all that's out of the window when you come down to that, you know, when you're using that high resolution mode, because you don't really care, you're, you know, you're in manual focus anyway, right. For the most part. Yeah. Um, and, but a question that comes up is when you're, you were talking a lot about depth of field or, or, or shooting, Shooting subjects in this case this guy right shooting these these shots with this ridiculously thin depth of field that you have to manage why not focus stacking or are you doing focus stacking on you know on on a on a, a giant 100 plus megapixel image, are you doing multiple versions at different focal lengths and then bringing all I of mean, that some, together? Sometimes I do.
1: Yeah, you know, I, uh, I'll occasionally do, but uh, usually it's only two or three frames if I'm doing oh. that. That image might've been two frames. I'd have to look back and double check. I think it might've been one. But um, yeah, because, especially with a water droplet image, those droplets are being soaked into the seed. The seed is going to sag and change it Uh, change the shape over time and over a short period of time it's not a static subject uh, because you'll see it the same way with your own you check back oh yeah it kind of looks the same but for the pixels in the camera they will have shifted dramatically that they won't be able to align up afterwards Mm -hmm. Uh, moreover you have a lot of um, objects that are in front of something and then you have something like behind it. And the delta between those two, if you don't have a smooth transition between them, um, then you're going to have artifacts happening. And so without that smooth transition between one of the spokes or lines of the dandelion seed, uh, for lack of a better term, directly overlapping another one with a refracted image, which is also at a different focus point of something else, uh uh, it can be done but you're going to have to do a lot of manual corrections on on an image like that so get as much of it in focus as you can uh and that high resolution mode allows you to step back to do that and then crop in to get the uh the piece that is is going to make you the money at the end of the day
0: yeah yeah so good it's so good yeah that that's inspiring right because it you can get one of those alligator clamps or in various sizes you don't. i mean you could get the the uh you know the platypod base and the snake arms and put the you know do the don komaretska kit you don't necessarily have to do that you could take a, a trip to michael's or your local craft store and get some arms to hold things up and you know to get started oh, totally with, um, yeah
1: I, I would say that um, you know, uh, they, they, they sell it for soldering. Uh, they call them third hand or helping hand tools. Mm-hmm. They're little alligator clips on a little swivel base. And they're not really articulating that much, but they can hold one thing here and they can hold another thing here, and they cost 10 bucks. So you know, as a place to start, You know, and I can even take those little alligator clamps and I can stick them in one of those more advanced setups that I have, and they make a really nice, snug adjustment on that. Heck, I've even taken clothespins and I've drilled a hole that I could screw the quarter 20 thread into, and a clothespin can work instead of a crab clamp. You know, you don't have to use the most advanced things. Uh, you have to use what works. And sometimes what works is right under your nose and you're just unaware of it for one reason or another.
0: Yeah. Okay, Here, here's a final question on this shot here. What is the patented Don Komarecka formula for water droplets? Like that's not just water on there. I'm guessing that's some, something else in there to add to the adhesion, uh, and, uh, avoid evaporation. Like what, what's your secret formula? All right. So the secret formula, Frederick, and I'm only telling this to you is,
1: is water. It's just plain old water. Dead. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I, am not hiding anything that that's what it was that I, I can repeat the process. Uh, and the, the, the thing is, uh, there is a technique to get it to look this way though, and that's important. And so that's part of the secret. Um, I take a spray bottle and you spray like, if you could imagine that that dandelion seed is sort of between my my fingers right here as I'm holding them. And I, I spray the spray bottle. I spray it above. And so the spray sprays, a lot of it goes over top, but some of it settles down. And the stuff that settles down is the stuff that you want because it's the finest of the water droplets. And so the finest stuff accrues over time I get my whole desk wet Uh, not my computer desk I have a a desk off on the side um, that is just a plastic folding table and so you spray until your trigger finger gets sore and then you might have enough but the real kicker if you bring that image back up Frederick is the big droplet in the middle because that was not created through that same process that was created from a hypodermic needle and uh, I mean, you can get blunt uh, needle tips uh, that you can attach to a syringe as well. You know, you don't have to get something that you could possibly poke yourself with. Uh, and you can get those easily from pharmacies or from Amazon. You, they'll sell them in big kits of various different gauges. The, the smallest uh, diameter on that gauge is usually what you'd want because the, uh, the needle tip itself is hydrophobic. The droplet wants to get away from it as quickly as possible. So it'll jump onto just about anything immediately. And so the smaller droplets from a spray bottle, the big one in the middle from that hypodermic needle, uh, and, uh, and away you go. Uh, if you, f- it's funny because if, yeah. you, if you were to look at my, my studio desk right now and you'll see, oh, that's random camera equipment and then this, this used needle just sitting there, that, that's the elephant in the room, right? Like yeah. nobody's going to talk about it. Um, but no, that, that's a photographic tool, uh, for me to be creating water droplets with that particular needle, an insulin needle. Uh, you know, I, I had a, a student of mine that had a dog that, uh, had passed away, but they had needed, uh, insulin for their diabetes. And they had a bunch of these old syringes and needles left over. They worked perfectly, yeah. you know, just any, any of those metal tipped, uh, things that uh, go into a syringe, you can place a droplet perfectly with that.
0: Where do and you get these syringes get. from? I can't, I can't see just going <laughs> to a store and saying, yeah, yeah, I just need a bunch of syringes. Don't ask me why. <laughs>
1: no, like, I, well, the thing is, if, the, if, you were to, if you were to go into a pharmacy, Frederick, and you say, yeah. I need a clean needle, there's no follow-up questions. You will get one. There will probably be some judgment in the back of the person's mind uh, that gives it to you. But no, uh, again, the blunt tip ones are used for measuring out different uh, medicines to go into different things. And you can get those on Amazon in a kit for, I don't know, 10 bucks. And they'll just send you like a whole package of them. Uh, And so you don't have to have that
0: versus yeah. having a conversation yeah. with a pharmacist about why I need these hypodermic needles, you know. Oh just for a to... photo project, sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. A He'll photo project. <laughs> <laughs> and I was honest. You know, really, I don't have a problem. Um, you know the other thing when I'm looking at the shot, Don, I'm thinking, yeah, especially as you're explaining it and the the process with regular water, but then, you know, adding the hero in there with a hypodermic needle You got to have some steady hands. So you're not uh, you're not caffeinated while you're while you're creating this. Right. And what about the environment that you're in? I'm sure no wind, no banging bass from your, you know, your rap music, you know, none of that stuff going on. Right. How do you you maintain?
1: (laughs) <laughs> do this inside, make sure that there's no wind, you know, close the windows, you know, turn off the air conditioner. You don't want to have airflow moving around. That's going to cause some issues for you. Um, but you'd be surprised, you know, I, uh, I typically, I, I, the, the, the needles are designed to be like pushed in, right? That the syringes. Yeah. So, but, uh, I grab the, 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 uh, the barrel of the pushy part that goes supposed to go in and I just kind of, barely nudge that to just get a tiny little bit of water coming out uh, and it's tricky to finesse that and I'm often like holding one hand over the other hand and all of my hands are braced against something and I'm trying to be as stable as possible and who knows maybe I've had coffee or not maybe I should have whiskey instead just yeah. uh, to, to, to steady my hands in, in that scenario but um You know, you'll probably screw up the first time, maybe the first 10 times. Uh, And even after that, you won't get it right every time. Um, But for certain subjects, it's worth a repeat, Uh, a dandelion seed. You get 50 of them on a single seed head. You can rinse and repeat. You know, it's not a process that is going to be that arduous to spray again and place another one on in case you screw it up. Yeah, it's just going to, you're going to be creating a subject and the creation of the subject is before you ever pick up the camera, Mm -hmm. right? So you're Mm -hmm. a droplet architect or sculptor or however you want to frame it first and a photographer second.
0: Yeah. Are there, are there any, like, if I want to experiment with this and I'm, you know, going to go head to the grocery store and buy a bunch of things or to the flower shop or whatever, are there any any subjects, in this case, you know, it appears to be a sunflower, right, are are there any subjects that I should start with to kind of learn and get my, that that are more, I don't know, uh, conducive or accepting of this technique? Absolutely, uh, gerbera daisies uh, tend to be a great flower to put in the
1: background. In this case, I was using a sunflower, but gerbera daisies are a radially symmetrical flower um, that are relatively flat, so they work really good to put in behind your subject. And you can even pluck a petal from those flowers and place water droplets on the petal, and try to make an image with that, and hold that in a clamp and, and put those things together. And I've done a lot of those experiments as well. But the 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 issue with that is um, it is somewhat one-dimensional, and so you want to have maybe a different foreground subject. Uh, dandelion seeds might not be available to everybody at all times of the year. Uh, I use lots of other any wildflower seed works. If you're in a cold area right now, you'll have clematis seeds that have gone, uh, you know, they've gone to seed, and there are these little puff balls that are on vines, probably on a fence somewhere grab some of those those will work uh and and try to put them into uh, so many different things uh different seasons Lupin leaves barberry leaves um any bluegrass that has a powder coating on it is hydrophobic that'll make beaded up water droplets that are very spherical on that bluegrass itself Uh, tons of different options to explore there's no substitute for your own experimentation though, because you're going yeah. to find things that I haven't yet.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then what about what about lenses for this? Like what, what lens for this particular shot were you using? And for the, the folks that just want to start playing around and experimenting, what macro lens or other do you you recommend? So macro
1: photography does not necessarily require autofocus. In fact, I rarely use autofocus with my macro work. Um, and to that end, some of the highest quality manual focus lenses on the market are made by Venus Optics. So that was shot with a Liowa which is made by Venus Optics, the, the Leowa 90 millimeter lens for um, uh, medium, uh, uh, sorry, uh, mirrorless cameras. So I've got it for the, the Lumix mount. They've got it for the Sony and the RF and, uh, and and the Z mount and, and everything else. So you' if you have a mirrorless camera, look at the Liowa 90 millimeter lens. They've got an 85 as well uh, that has a smaller aperture and it's really compact. That's kind of my favorite at the moment. Um, but because you're if you've got that high res mode and you're stepping back, um, I've done a lot of these shots with the the Lumix twenty four to one hundred five millimeter kit lens that came with my camera, and it's not a macro lens technically. It doesn't get up to the one to one magnification. Um, but again, if you're throwing so much away, you don't need to get properly into the realm to get yourself there. Uh, if you do that's fine. The Liowa lenses are probably the best on the market for your dollar right now, if autofocus isn't a concern and it shouldn't be. Uh, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm using most of the time. That's my daily
0: driver. Stuff, man, you know, these, these interviews, I gotta tell you, they're, they're short circuiting for me, right? Cause <laughs> I'm like, now, you know, I'm like that, 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 uh, the movie, everything, like, Everything all at once, or I forgot what the title of it is. Um, but it's this woman who lives in a, a various universes, and you know becomes skilled in all these different universes, and is able to summon powers from her alternate selves at will to to tackle the the task at hand. Um, I look at this this stuff kind of in that like genres are different universes for photographers. It's like, I want to play in this, this microverse, you know, that Don is, you know, doing all this amazing work in. And what if you cross the streams, like cross the streams with, and have you experimented with this where you have like a macro I
1: I lost your audio, Frederick. I don't know what happened when uh, you threw the screen share back up.
0: Uh Uh-oh. Okay. I'm back now. Can you hear me? Oh, I
1: got you now. I got you now. Yeah.
0: Okay. You know, I was saying, um, that's another edit point, my fault. Uh, But I was saying shots like this, where you have, uh, you know, have you ever ever considered crossing the streams or crossing genres? Like, for example, this beautiful macro shot... incorporating colored gel photography into it or colored gel flash or strobe into it to do other things. Have you ever done anything like that? Or are you strictly macro, get the subject right, hypodermic needle, lumix, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all that? No,
1: I, I've done that, Frederick. And, and um, you know, I, I've used it uh, specifically with freezing soap bubbles. You know you gel the lights with different colors and they interact with the crystal facets on different facets and you create this wonderful puzzle uh uh, patchwork and and sometimes they're not that deviating from each other like one might be yellow one might be red but the interactions become all sorts of uh different contrasts between those two and when you're making either that or what we've just been looking at you are seeing the artistry you're not going out into nature and photographing something in a documentary setting you're creating your subject Mm -hmm. and once you've crossed that line of creating your subject there is no barrier you can do anything you can imagine because it's yours now and that is really powerful
0: that's right that's right what about what about the um the new tools in lightroom you mentioned that you're you're a lightroom photoshop primary user the the tools in lightroom and photoshop and camera raw for advanced masking and and those sorts of things do those come into play in your work now now that you can easily take the subject
1: (laughs) i i keep trying with the advanced masking yeah and i keep thinking okay they've done it this time i'm now gonna have a no it doesn't work um it doesn't do because the The algorithms, if they call it artificial intelligence enhanced or deep learned enhanced or whatever term, they're not as nuanced for these particular obscure subjects. Mm. And um, they just... They're not trained as well on them as I'd like. And they keep missing things like the edge of a bubble. It doesn't detect properly if it's slightly out of focus. And it's that depth of field issue that I think plays very hard onto a lot of these things that uh, it doesn't understand when the contrast fades off that it's not contiguous. Uh, It it thinks that it breaks apart and now it's free flowing into the background and Mm -hmm. we're not there yet we probably will be but they haven't trained it properly on macro photography yet because it is still a bit of a niche although more and more people do it uh those algorithms they still have a long way to go
0: yeah they those algorithms are you know nearly perfect at selecting humans right because they've been trained to look for the eyes the nose the mouth and can kind of extrapolate the rest of the body from there and boom excuse me, you can select a human and facial features and do the retouching. So I think those and, and skies and foregrounds and all those things. But yeah, you're right. Down into the microverse, it's, you know, it's you're you're working in Ant-Man land now, right? So. <laughs> well, and I'll so. give you a fun example. You know, I'll, I'll upload one of my snowflake images to a reverse
1: image search algorithm to find out where that particular snowflake will exist uh, on the internet, maybe to find infringements, or maybe I've put at least one of them into the public domain just to see where it might end up, right? So I want to just see where this has gone. And it cannot recognize that individual snowflake. Any of my other images, it can create a fingerprint on it. It works perfectly fine. But I throw out a snowflake, it throws me the world's collection of snowflakes, every single one of them, because it thinks that that's what I'm after. Mm. Um, But I'm looking for that specific one and it's not trained on that. And it can't find it. And, and, and I see this a lot, uh, you know, not just in that case, but obviously as we were talking about within the subject selection algorithms and how they're defined, they're not where they need to be yet. Um, they'll get there. It's just a matter of time, but today's not the day.
0: Love it. Well, Don, let's wrap up with uh, future, I always like to wrap up with future facing stuff. Like what what's next for you? What are you working on? What major projects that you can, you can talk about. I know a lot of things you can't talk about, but yeah. what are you working no, I, on? I got a couple of really cool stuff I can't mention, and I'm, I'm upset about that. Well, you'll um, get to it. You'll get to it, eventually. Uh, I'll get <laughs> to it. I mean,
1: uh, somewhere in, in my drawer here of things, I've got... Uh, what, what have I got? I've got th- this... Okay, this I'm I'm not a drug dealer here. This little baggie contains
0: <laughs> syringes uh, and small baggies with powder <laughs> in them. Uh. Yeah, no, this
1: is not this is not powder. This is
0: uh, uh,
1: tiny little diamonds. And some of them fluoresce under different, uh, uh, well, the, uh, under a long wavelength fluorescent light. Some will fluoresce blue, others orange, uh, some a variety of different colors. It's called diamond dust. And uh, you can buy a, a pack of this stuff on eBay. It's just leftovers from the diamond mines uh, for almost nothing. I've got this other drawer, uh, this other, uh, um, I guess, um contraption here this is a special microscope slide uh it's got my name on it uh specifically but in this i've got uh and it's gonna be impossible to see on the camera because they're so tiny even if i could get the angle right but this slide thing contains uh about six or seven micrometeorites micrometeorites that are smaller than a grain of sand and uh My goal will be to under 50 times microscope objectives, try to combine them with the fluorescing diamonds and to try to make the diamonds become the light source that illuminates the micrometeorite that's from outer space.
0: Wow. Wow. There was so much geekiness in that paragraph. I don't even want to... (laughs) (laughs) That <laughs> see, it hasn't that, been done before, Fred. That encapsulates Don Komoreska right there. Science meets photography, meets marketer, meets educator, right there. Mix all that stuff together, and Don Komoreska pops out, right? So,
1: and that's just one of those irons in the fire. There's yeah. there are more, but uh, you know, I, I digress because some of them are under wraps, and I'd really love to talk about them. Um, but like some of the documentary film stuff, uh, the, the, the projects that I get into, some of them are so. In depth and encapsulating, it's like okay, I got to put blinders on and focus on just that for a while, and then I realize, you know, I've been doing that for a week, two weeks, a month. I can't talk to anybody about this, and it drives me nuts because it's all I've been thinking about. And uh, and so when I can come up with my own crazy ideas with micrometeorites and fluorescing mini diamonds, then uh, then I'm happy because I can talk about that, even if I fail to accomplish anything with it. Um, I I still have a good time trying.
0: Love it, love it. All right, so when you can talk about that other stuff, come back on the show. I mean, you're going to be on the show, you know, before then. But when you can talk about this stuff, I'd love to hear because that was a hell of a cliffhanger, right? So I need to, <laughs> I need to know the twip the twip audience needs to know what Don is working on. Well, cool. If people want to connect, reach out. Uh, I know you've got. I think you still have some training, edu- some educational materials out there that people can, people can connect with. What's the best I way do. to get into
1: Don World? Uh, so, well, uh, so I still have my my book, my latest book, uh, Macro Photography: The Universe at Our Feet, uh, which you can get to from the odd URL because it's based on my first book. But that would be SkyCrystals.ca. But even if you can't find it there. Just go to doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. You'll find all the links to everything. And heck, I'm in Bulgaria right now. Change to the .ca to .bg. You'll still find me. I was um, going to
0: ask. Yeah, you got the BG?
1: <laughs> I, I do. I, I got it all hooked up. So um, you'll find me there. And uh reach out my email address is not hard to find if you have any questions you want to chat about something uh you got a curiosity that's just rattling around inside your head that you think i might be able to help out with come on throw it at me more than happy to help Uh, let's, let's make a connection
0: I love it. Yeah. And you're a member of the Twip community as well. So, you know, Twip members can I am. I, I was on the critique that was uh, recorded. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously this is not
1: uh, airing back to back, but I was on a recent one yeah. uh, and I rambled profusely and I hope it was uh, helpful. But uh, I'll pop in from time to time and make sure that, uh, that my voice is heard and that uh, I can help anybody in the Twip community uh, make sense of stuff, tag me on something, and I'll, I'll, I'll immediately show up like a genie. You know, that, that, that's how you, you – just uh, if I see a, a, a notice in my inbox, I am there. I'm going to help.
0: Yeah. Say, say, say his last name three times and he will appear. <laughs> <laughs> So cool, man. All right, we'll leave it right there. Don Comoreska, thank you, man, for coming on. I appreciate you. Always mind blowing, inspirational. Uh, and all the things talking to you I mean look at, looking at this work it's just fantastic I love what you're doing and again the the meticulousness of like I was saying before it just sort of drips off of your work right you can tell that the thought that goes into it and the skill of understanding that micro world and how to capture these things and the science of the you know how the water is going to adhere to the various, you know, uh, hydrophobic surfaces, all that stuff is just fascinating to me. And it's, it's great that you're able to successfully merge your passions for art and science and exploration together to benefit all of us with this great work. So congratulations on that.
1: Well, thank you, Frederick. But uh, I want to say congratulations to anybody that ever attempts it, because if you attempt it and you fail, uh, welcome to my nightmare uh you are in exactly the same boat that i have been in many times and continue to be in because as soon as i ask that what if question i don't know the answer and so i thereby don't know the solution i don't know what i'm doing at that point i am clueless and i embrace that cluelessness and just ride the wave we all should do the same and thank you for
0: having me on this episode frederick it's been a blast all right excellent Don marichka enjoy be safe out there in bulgaria and uh, we'll talk to you soon this is twitter